do not send your children to the humanities. Do not send your children to the humanities. They're corrupt. They won't learn to think because the postmodernists don't believe in thinking. They won't learn logic because the postmodernists believe that logic is one of the tools that the oppressive patriarchy uses to sustain its oppressive patriarchy. Tonight, we renew our resolve that America will never be a socialist country. So the NDP and the Liberals, they can't keep up to us. They can't keep up to us because we're doing a great job. Now the official opposition is the media. This is Lowercase Truth. Well, I, I, I think that the, the right has produced a series of anti-public intellectuals, not public intellectuals. I mean, they're against the public. You know, they're basically apostles of neoliberalism. They basically believe that the market should, dr- should drive all, of, all social relationships and, and should be a template for basically measuring the entirety, uh, for governing the entirety of, of society. And, and I think that they, they see higher education as dangerous when it's particularly engaged in something that it should be engaged in. And that is educating people to be critically engaged citizens. I think that's how democracies work. That's what higher education should do. Welcome to hell. Left is right, up is down, radical Marxist professors are apparently flooding our universities, and Donald Trump is the president of the United States. People cannot tell the difference between fake news and bias, between facts and fictions. Anti-intellectualism is on the rise. Polarization is palpable. I'm Maggie Reed, and you are listening to Lowercase Truth, which is a podcast about truth in a post-truth world. Now, you may be asking yourself, what do Jordan Peterson, Donald Trump, and Doug Ford have in common? Well, from where I stand, they are all capitalizing on the current crisis of truth. These questions of who can we put trust in and what can we actually know about the world? President Trump will tell you that any media outlet that criticizes him is fake news. He spouts lies so often that journalists have made careers out of fact-checking him. Our current Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, has created his own media network called Ontario News Now, which is not news by any stretch of the imagination. It is entirely public relations. Its primary purpose is to portray old Dougie in a positive light. The media is the enemy, so these politicians can shield themselves from scrutiny. Because the media must be corrupt, unless it is working to affirm every decision that they make. But these two politicians claim that they are for the people. They are not your typical politicians. They are unpolished. They seem to speak off the cuff. They appear to be authentic and have conviction in a world where a tenured political class has let down struggling Americans and Canadians as dreams of social mobility seem further and further out of reach. Now, I'm not going to argue that political elitism isn't a problem. Of course it is. But like most things, the devil is in the nuance. Donald Trump and Doug Ford do not represent a move away from elitism. They both come from wealthy families where they were handed jobs at their father's companies. They are part of the elite. The pick-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps philosophies they espouse do not apply to them. As these politicians carry out their policies for the people like cutting taxes, cutting funding to education, and cutting social services, they assure you that socialism is the real threat to society. 
that Bernie Sanders is old crazy Bernie, that student unions on university campuses get up to crazy Marxist nonsense and shouldn't be funded, that colleges and universities need to enforce free speech policies or they will see their funding cut. Education has become demonized in this moment, to say the least. And when we talk about truth, we cannot separate it from ideology. Because we aren't always talking about contesting facts. Sometimes we are talking about interpreting facts differently. Take, for example, this Fox News poll on increasing income tax for the wealthy. What seems to be a movement against capitalism in this country, this is a piece in Politico uh, just published, Soak the Rich. Americans say, go for it. In this piece, it talks about uh, how recent polling is showing that the American public is increasingly on board with raising taxes on the rich. As evidence, uh, evidence we pulled up this latest Fox News poll on the issue, whether Americans support raising taxes on the wealthy, on incomes over 10 million bucks. Uh, those that are in favor of that, 70 percent Charles, over a million dollars in income, 65% are in favor of raising taxes. The idea of fairness has been promoted in our schools for a long time. And we're starting to see kids who grew up in this notion that fairness above all, uh, and, and, and now they're becoming voting age and they're bringing this ideology with them. So Fox will report that people want to tax the rich, but the reason behind it is because schools are selling the despicable ideology of fairness. Cue Jordan Peterson. Where to begin? This man wants to essentially cancel entire departments in the university. He claims they are corrupt, that the social sciences and humanities have been taken over by postmodern neo-Marxists and social justice warriors who are obsessed with political correctness, which he repeats time and time again, lumping entire departments all together without evidence that this is objectively the case. While there have been some studies showing that there is a liberal bias in particular departments, we must remember that liberal does not mean left. Let's not conflate the two. Remember when the liberal media gave no coverage to old crazy Bernie Sanders in the 2016 election and only took Hillary Clinton seriously and, and gave her coverage? Liberal is not left. Once again, nuance is dead. And with all of the outrage about how the ghost of Karl Marx haunts the social sciences and humanities, where are the studies, where is the outrage questioning the political leanings of professors in economics departments, many of whom failed to predict the financial crisis of 2008? Jordan Peterson will have you believe that he has no ideology, that he is operating in good faith, but he isn't. Peterson engages in all sorts of bad faith arguments, like saying that anyone who claims to care about the downtrodden in society while identifying as a Marxist is defending 20th century state socialism under Mao and Stalin. Now, there is no necessary connection between these two things, but he assures us that this is the inevitable end of any sort of equity experiment in a society. He argues in his book, 12 Rules for Life, that conservatism is evolution, it is science. It is natural and necessary. Hierarchies are natural and necessary. Just look at lobsters. It is very interesting that he claims to be a man of science and reason while referencing Carl Jung, whose theories on universal archetypes are highly unscientific and widely discredited. Regardless, 
In espousing this view, he claims to have no ideology. No, what he's talking about is strict lobster science. When someone claims to have no ideology, that is usually a sign that they are literally the most ideological person. In Peterson's book, he advocates a personal responsibility bootstrap self-help doctrine, and it is a Trojan horse for a reactionary political ideology. At best, he wants to preserve the status quo, and at worst, to turn back the clock on social progress. The ideas he brings to the table are not new. They are not fresh. It is conservatism wearing a fake mustache. Let's look at Rule 6 from Peterson's book. Set yourself in perfect order before you criticize the world. What he's really selling here is a narrative that writes young people out of democracy. Young people shouldn't be questioning the world, he argues, because they haven't really lived it. But young people, especially kids, are the world's natural philosophers, questioning everything, always asking why. Nothing is natural or necessary to children when they're learning about the world. But he would rather you wait until you are indoctrinated into social norms before having a seat at the table. So why are people turning to these populist figures and narratives? My guest in today's podcast, Henry Giroux, talks about the rise of anti-intellectualism, the demonizing of education, and how the right has been doing a good job of providing a narrative in this moment, of filling a void in our society where notions of community are withering, where people are feeling uncertain about the future, where socialism becomes a boogeyman, a catch-all for anyone advocating for a more equitable society. Henry Giroux founded the Public Intellectuals Project. He is a cultural critic, journalist, and a professor at McMaster University. And today, we are going to be talking about education, about truth, and about struggles for democracy. Hi, Henry Giroux. Hi. Thank you for being on Lowercase Truth. Oh, it's my, it's my pleasure. Henry, we are living in tumultuous and divisive political times. People are feeling numbed by the news cycle. Studies are showing that people are divided on ideological lines more now than at any point in the last two decades. In politics, we are seeing a huge wave of anti-intellectualism. Politicians like Donald Trump act as though they are champions of the common folk. While those that are educated, those in the political elite, are seen to be far removed from the concerns of most people. Why is education being regarded with such disdain? Well, I, I, I think we live at a time when uh, two things have happened over the last 40 years. I mean, the first move was to basically instrumentalize education and empty it out of any substance. We were, you know, I mean, particularly in the United States, uh, from the Bush administration to the Obama administration, the notion of education was completely tied to the notion of the workplace. So the notion of educating citizens to be actually critically involved and engaged and to have some sort of sense of obligation to what it meant to live in a society in which you had to struggle for democracy seemed to be eclipsed, to say the least. Of course, something tragic happened under Trump in that Trump actually embraced a kind of anti-intellectualism that was fundamental to, his, to the necessity for him to make sure that people didn't question his own authority. And he constantly pushed this. The truth is, is dangerous 
to people like Trump and the Trump administration, as it is to all dictators. And so it seems to me that what we saw for the first time in a long time was a, a president who, rather than saying that you know citizens matter in a democracy, he said democracy doesn't matter, and therefore we don't want informed citizens. And on the, on the basis of that presupposition, actually has endlessly attacked the press, claiming that uh, the press is the enemy of the American people, a line often used by Stalin before he executed people, <laughs> or claiming that the news is basically fake news, suggesting that there are no universal standards for talking about what the truth might be, or measuring facts against reality, and in collapsing basically the worlds of fiction and the worlds of facts, he ended up weaponizing language, and using language in a way to divide, to undermine, to miseducate, to misrepresent. So what, what we see here are two things at the present moment. We see an enormous attack on civic literacy, which is fundamental to any democracy, and certainly fundamental to any notion of education that really matters. And we see basically uh, an attack on the notion that for a democracy to matter, you need informed citizens. Right. And you said there was very a very great kind of poignant quote in a talk you gave last year. Truth is now viewed as a liability. Yeah. Okay. So truth is a liability. Ignorance is a virtue. This strikes me as extremely Orwellian in nature. Can you elaborate on this? Well, I, I mean, it, truth is a liability under authoritarian regimes because it does two things. One, it holds power accountable, and that's a liability for people who basically don't want to uh, be interrogated in terms of the crimes that they commit, right, or the policies that they produce or the social relationships that they legitimate. Uh, the other side of this is, is that uh, thinking is dangerous. Thinking becomes dangerous in, in authoritarian countries. I mean... All you have to do is listen to Trump lie every day. He's a serial liar. And now with Jim Acosta, with, he's going even further. I mean, revoking the press credentials of people who ask him questions that are at the heart of what it means to interrogate power. Suggest something about what truth means and how dangerous it can become and how thinking can become dangerous. You know, Arant once said that the, the essence of fascism is thoughtlessness. And I, and I think that so when we say that truth is, is dangerous and ignorance is basically a virtue, what you're describing is what authoritarian regimes have invested in for, for, for decades. And that is that we just cannot have people holding power accountable. We can't have people interrogating power. We can't have people educating other human beings to recognize how power is being abused. And people who do that will either be censored, they'll be put in jail, or in the most extreme cases, of course, as we're seeing, in, as we saw with the Khashoggi, right, in, in, uh, in Turkey, they, they can be killed. So this is really a form of social control. Well, social control is a, is a, is a kind of mild, mild sociological term. Uh, this, this is political repression. I'm sorry. It's about more than social control. You know, social, social control is an interesting word because it's more expansive. You know, it seems to suggest that you're educating a populace in a way that prevents them from being critical agents. And I think that mode of social control is more fundamental now than anything we've seen in the past because the media is more corporatized and more controlled by the right than any time we've seen in the past, particularly in the United States, less in Canada, but certainly in the United States. And, I, and so I think that the struggle over consciousness, the struggle over literacy, you know, the struggle over the ability of 
of, of a populace to be able to learn how to govern rather than be governed has been enormously diminished because those sites where education really take place, not just the schools. We're not just talking about schools. You know, we're talking about all fa- all the platforms that are engaged in the production of knowledge. You know, whether we're talking about, you know, cultural apparatuses like uh, television or we're talking about digital platforms or we're talking about Facebook. You know, the, these increasingly are either platforms for surveillance or platforms for propaganda. And occasionally, you, of course, in the most extreme times, you'll get the New York Times or the Washington Post or CNN will push back. But generally speaking, I mean, this is a very conservative media that's actually driven now in a most profoundly disturbing way by Trump. Trump body slams the media every day. Every tweet that Trump produces creates a diversion. So that we're not talking about race, we're not talking about class, we're not talking about inequality, we're not talking about climate change enough, we're not talking about indigenous populations, we're not talking about, you know, the war on women and reproductive rights. I mean, these, we're not talking about the things that matter in many ways. We're talking about what Trump wants us to, to talk about. And that speaks basically to the concentration of power in the media and the inability of alternative media, which, thank God, we have some around, you know, uh, to, to really uh, be able to match in both power an audience what the corporate media is able to do. So it seems like there's a few things going on. So there, there's, as you said, this kind of, there's a lot of ideological control happening. And there's a lot of effort to distract people from what's actually going on. We're paying attention to Trump's tweets. We're not paying attention to what he's actually doing. And this is a huge problem. On the other hand, you know, we talked about how there's this attack on education. Education means a number of things. It means institutional education. It means education from the media. But at the same time, we're seeing an attack particularly on higher education. Okay, We're seeing these kind of scathing critiques coming from people like Jordan Peterson, saying that certain disciplines like the humanities and social sciences are corrupt. They are out of touch. They are obsessed with political correctness. And There is somewhat of a moral panic specifically surrounding higher education. Is this part of the same phenomenon that you just talked about, or is this something different? Well, I I think that the the right has produced a series of anti-public intellectuals, not public intellectuals. I mean, they're against the public. You know, they're basically apostles of neoliberalism. They basically believe that the market should... should drive all of all social relationships and, and should be a template for basically measuring the entirety and for governing the entirety of, of society. And, and I think that they, they see higher education as dangerous when it's particularly engaged in something that it should be engaged in. That is educating people to be critically engaged citizens. I think that's how democracies work. That's what higher education should do. Its job is not just to provide people to sit on the boards of uh, you know major banks and hedge funds. It's not its job is not just simply to train people for for the jobs and its and its purpose is not just simply to take up the the great books and to teach people the great ideas uh, in in a very narrow and limited way and so I think that people like Peterson and others are, are alarmed over something and what they're alarmed over is the fact that uh, more and more people have access to education more and more people are taking seriously particularly young people what it means to be engaged and what it means to be able to rate, relate their lives to the problems that they see around them in a critical informed 
and a nuanced way. That's dangerous to authoritarians. I mean, they can say what they want about the university being corrupt. If they want to really take seriously what it means for the university to be corrupt, then what they should be doing is talking about the way in which corporate money is shaping the university. They should be talking about the, the increasing corporatization of the university. They should be talking about the fact that a business model now dominates the university. They should be talking about the fact that tuition rates are so high that students basically can't don't have access anymore to higher education, particularly working class students and minorities of race and, and color. Or they should be talking about the faculty who basically now have part-time jobs and in the United States in particular find themselves uh, you know, on, on the welfare rolls. So if you really want to talk about higher education, talk about injustice. Don't talk about some nostalgic notion of the past in which education basically was a colonial en- enterprise, you know, serving uh, you know, a, a, a very limited elite. So is this another distraction, these attacks on the university? It, it isn't an attack on the university. Of course it is. And, and, I, and I think that what's so sad is how much of the media buys into this because they have no conception of what the role of the university should be. The other side of this is that the university increasingly doesn't defend itself as a public good or a democratic public sphere. It defends itself as a workstation in, in, a, in, a, in a vast chain of economic institutions that basically are more concerned about the needs of, fi- of, of, of a, a financial class class, the financial elite, than it is about what it means, what role the university might play and what its obligations might be in making sure that they can contribute to uh, uh, sustaining a, a democracy in ways that students take seriously. So why is it that, and I'm really seeing this happen more and more with people like Peterson in the media, that anyone that is advocating social change, the idea that the current configuration of society is not the best one, is treated as ideological, whereas anybody advocating otherwise is is not ideological. Well, that's a nice way of saying that justice doesn't matter and that it should stand still. That's an argument for injustice, not an argument for justice. I mean, I, I anybody, you know, as my friend Zygmunt Bauman used to say, you know, he used to say, no society is ever just enough. And I think that what that means is that the arc of justice is never ending, right? We always need to think about what it means to improve the, the social orders in which we find ourselves, you know, how to make justice more expansive, how to improve the lives of as many people as we can, how to take equality seriously without turning it, into, turning it into something stupid, you know, how to provide the conditions where nobody has to experience poverty, everybody has access to decent schools, decent health care. Of course, that's a struggle. That's an ongoing struggle. And people generally who have power are not willing to give it up. But they often have uh, uh, supporting them are ideological hacks, you know, who basically claim that, no, 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 it's, it's a, to, to argue that society needs to be improved is, is an injustice. It's not an injustice. That's the foundation for justice. So I think these people are not simply confused. I think they're people so wedded to the status quo and to the benefits they get from the status quo uh, that they basically become ideological props for the most authoritarian, in my estimation, ideologies. And so how do you respond to some of these critiques that we're seeing saying that the social sciences and humanities are these Marxist indoctrination calls. We're seeing all sorts of attacks that professors in the social sciences and humanities tend to be leftist. And uh, this is really kind of waged as another attack on the university, as if the university and professors in the university are supposed to be somewhat neutral, or there should be neutrality in the university as if there's neutrality in the market or in the world. Can you respond well, to that? There are two arguments here, right? Sure. I mean, the first argument, which is really the most revealing, is that university professors should be uh, teachers, people who deal with information, you know, somehow shouldn't have points of view. 
I'm, I'm not sure uh, how that's possible. All forms of education are, in a sense, determinate. You make choices about books. You make choices about courses. You make choices about the social relations in which you want your students to involve. So you can't separate the question of education from values. And I think at some level, that's the argument, that values have no place in education. That's not education. Uh, education is always an active intervention. Education is a struggle over agencies. It's a struggle over narratives. It's a struggle over knowledge. And it's a struggle over, over, over how you presuppose the future. I mean, I'm, I don't want to educate my students to suggest they should believe in nothing. I want to educate my students to believe that whatever they believe in, they should take it seriously and be able to defend it and actually engage it in the public sphere. I want to educate my students to be critical, to be critical, active citizens. I don't care what their specific ideology is. That's their choice. But the last thing that I want to do is to, is to make the claim that education is to educate you to believe in nothing. That's not education. That's ignorance. That's an, that's, that's, that's an argument for ignorance. The other side of that argument is that anybody who does make the claim that education has a mission and a purpose. I mean, who's going to argue that education doesn't have a purpose? You know, and who's going to argue? Who 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 wants to take seriously the notion that it shouldn't be a, a critical institution? Who wants to take seriously the notion that it should it should in some way function to improve the lives of of people both in 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 the particular society in which it operates and all over the world? I mean, that's that sounds like nonsense to me. And I and I and I think that in in some fundamental way, what we're really dealing with is a different kind of distinction between. Taking education seriously as a democratic public sphere, and at the same time making sure that we never commit an act of pedagogical terrorism. So why have we strayed from this? Why are why is education only being seen in terms of its economic benefit, in terms of the job it will lead to? Um, why is it being instrumentalized in this way? It's being instrumentalized because a revolution took place in the 1980s. Margaret Thatcher married Ronald Reagan. And produce something called neoliberalism. Okay, so what is neoliberalism? Neoliberalism is a policy that basically operates off the assumption that the market should not just simply define economic theories, it should define all social relations. And it, it, it functions in a way to suggest that uh, privatization, commodification, standardization, matters of efficiency, economic issues should drive all the questions that matter. It elevates self-interest to, to a national ideal. It seems to suggest that all public goods are corrupt. It suggests that the, the social order itself should be utterly determined and ulti ultimately measured against the question of financial needs, accumulation rather than social needs, and so it goes. And I and I and I so what I'm getting at is that in 1980, a major criticism emerged around public goods, saying that the public good really, in some way, was was something that oppressed people. You know that we need to privatize everything. We need we needed to contract everything out to the market. And at that time, something began to happen. The university was being radically redefined as an economic institution in in the so-called politics of globalization. And, and it was tragic because I, I think that all of a sudden the notion of the university as a public good began to wither. And we saw enormous instances of that in three ways. One, the administrations in higher education increasingly were modeled after, after businesses. We we're hiring CEOs to be presidents of universities. Secondly, faculty increasingly lost power as they were reduced from full-time faculty positions to adjuncts. In the United States, 70% of all faculty are part-time workers. And increasingly, students were seen as products and clients, you know, rather than as, as an investment in the future. And I think that as that corporatization of the university has, has increased over the, since the 1980s, uh, we've, we've seen a terrible undermining of the possibilities of education as a democratic public good. And I mean, is that even 
a, a viable project project is it good to just train people to be obedient workers i mean even if you are having practical education as leading to a job is it good to not to just be absent of critical thinking i mean if you want robots you know i i guess that's a good idea but who wants to educate people to be robots i mean i mean it seems to me that no job should function in such a way that people shouldn't have to think about whether or not, for instance, it's meaningful or it's just or it's worthwhile. I mean, so the question of thinking is is always in some fundamental way an asset when it comes to educating people. But let's go back to something. Look, the issue is not whether the university should educate people for the workplace. I mean, of course, the university has a role to play there. The issue is they shouldn't only educate them for the workplace. They should also educate them to be able to understand the nature of work. They should un understand what it means to be just. What are the consequences of the jobs that we have? You know, maybe it's worthwhile to educate people not to build bombs. Maybe it's worthwhile not to educate people to go into finance and to remove themselves from any sense of social and ethical responsibility. I mean, if the university is not a critical institution, then if it doesn't perform a critical function, then what does it do? And to go back to an earlier point that you made about uh, this business of the university being now taken over by the left, that, that, that operates on the same level as arguing that uh, President Trump is basically a, a man of the left. I mean, that's just absurd. And, and, I, and I think that not only is it absurd in terms of suggesting that the left dominates higher education, I think that the notion of the left becomes a s synonymous with the claim that anybody who sees the university as a public good is on the left. That's different. And I think that's where the argument really collapses and fails, though people who are uninformed are inclined to believe it. If the left dominates the university, why would they participate in all of a sudden being reduced, 70% of uh, faculty in the United States, why would they participate in being reduced to largely part-time jobs with little power, very little benefits, and terrible salaries? I mean, does that make sense? Gee, that's interesting. Hi, I'm on the left. I think we should eliminate tenure. Hi, I'm on the left. I think I should re be reduced to an adjunct. Hi, I'm on the left. I think I'm going to go on the welfare rolls because the university is paying me so little. It's absurd. I mean, it actually is so absurd. It belongs, That kind of logic is something that you would associate with the Twilight Zone. You know, do we really want to believe that in some fundamental way, this, this mythic lie that's being produced has any relevance. I mean, because to believe that is to believe Trump. Right, it right? is. It's the same logic. It you is. Know, you say it enough and you the narrative all of a sudden becomes normalized. You don't want to normalize something that's stupid. The left is marginalized in universities. Right. It's, it's not at the center of power. It's actually at the margins of power. So going back to your point about education being about more than just creating workers, people to enter the workplace. How do we encourage people to pursue education in the social sciences and humanities when there are all of these social forces at play? You talked about rising student debt, cost of living, the precarious nature of the workforce. Do you see this fear in your own students and how do you address it? I think you see it in, in, in almost all students. I mean, I think you have a millennial generation, you know, that's, that's operating under, uh, under a script that writes them out of democracy that basically writes them out of the future. You know, remember, you live in a culture of short-term investments, not long-term investments. And young people are a long-term investment. And that's one of the great crimes of neoliberalism. You know, it's about making profits quickly. It's not about investing in people. And it, and it seems to me that what, what, I, what I try to do with young people, certainly in my own teaching in talking about young people, I, I really believe that uh, knowledge is a form of power. 
And the more young people understand the conditions in which they find themselves, the more they're capable of informed judgments, the more they're capable of drawing upon different traditions, the more they're incapable of, of being public intellectuals in the sense of having opinions and being able to defend them and to engage in dialogue and to be able to understand that, you know, one of the great poisonous attributes of neoliberalism is to believe that all problems are individual problems. And to offset that by giving them the ability to translate private issues into larger public considerations and to be able to think historically, to be able to think relationally, to be able to bring things together. I mean, that's the foundation for empowering people. My goal as an educator is to inform them, is to help them to be more critically, to be more critical intellectuals, and to be able to understand the world relatedly. You know, and to have some sense of ethical and social responsibility. And I, and I think that all universities should do that. That's not just about the liberal arts, and it's not just about uh, the humanities. I mean, one of the things that I think is often missed is that if you look at the health sciences, their work is interdisciplinary. Many of them are actively involved in communities. Many of them are working on projects that are enormously related to improving the public good. Nobody claims they're communist. Nobody claims they're left. But it's only in the liberal arts and the humanities where people who say, hey, look, we think that our work should be relevant to the larger society, that we should be able to translate the, what we do in some way to address the social problems that people are facing so that the university doesn't become irrelevant. I mean, I don't want people looking at the humanities and the liberal arts and saying, gee, what do you do for us? You're, it's, you're irrelevant. You don't speak to larger public issues. You talk to each other. You know, you publish articles that only five people read. Uh, you know, wh where is the relevance of these departments for in, in a time of tyranny? In a, in a time of potentially a potential nuclear holocaust, in a time of you know great global crises, I mean you know the world bears down on the university, and in, in that sense, the university can't escape from it, and neither should the people who work in it. That's why I think the corporate university is such a failure, because the corporate university is really about the bottom line. It's not about solving social problems, and in fact, people who address social problems often get in the way of of that logic. Don't 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 you know don't raise. Uh, too many serious questions. You know, don't don't address larger public issues. Don't get us in trouble with corporate uh, sponsors. Is there then, you talk about academics who, you know, publish for other academics. Is there any blame to be placed on the academy for this rise of anti-intellectualism? Is there an in-crowd and an out-crowd? Do these ideas need to be made more readily accessible? You know, often ideas, when we have particular educational backgrounds, are treated as common sense, but maybe aren't to the general public. What, you know, what responsibility is there on Look, academics? I, I mean, the first responsibility, it would seem to me, would be on the university creating a space in which faculty have the opportunity to speak to important issues and to do the kind of work, both pedagogically and otherwise, that gives the university a relevance that makes it central to the functioning of democracy itself. You can't do that when, when you, you, you're, you're filling a university with adjuncts. You know, these people are powerless. They, they live in fear. They're afraid to speak out. I mean, we have a form of academic censorship now going on in the university that is often not talked about. People often talk about, well, you know, you know, faculty are saying this or they're saying that, and I think that's offensive. The real issue is that faculty are not speaking out at all, almost at all, because they find themselves working on the conditions of labor that keep them in fear, that make them insecure, that don't give them time to be able to do the reading or to think about issues that matter. So let's not blame the faculty. Let's blame the administrations. 
These administrations basically have concentrated power, hired more administrators than they need. There's a glut at the administrative level. Everybody knows that. It, it, it seems to me that the first condition would be, how do we provide the conditions for faculty to actually be public intellectuals, to speak to important issues? Secondly, uh, what responsibility do academics have to take on when they're in that position? In what way do, do they need to rewrite the script of what it means to be in the university and to function in a way that they're able to not only defend the nature of their own labor, but they can speak to issues and translate and address social problems and talk about the workings of power in ways that both educate their students and educate the larger public? What does it mean to be both rigorous and accessible? What does it mean to merge the notions of scholarship with the notion of public scholarship? academic scholarship and public scholarship. We need more intellectuals to do that. And it, and it seems to me that in a time of increasing tyranny, it's even more uh, important, I, I would think, to get intellectuals in the academy to be able to address an, a whole range of social issues that are bearing down on us in ways that might suggest the end of humanity. If we don't solve the ecological crisis, you know, if, if, the, if there isn't some way to address the, the possibility of a, of a nuclear war, if what it means to, you know, not be able to educate our students to live in a world in which they learn how to govern rather than be governed, these are all serious issues. And they're not just about the fate of, of the academy. They're about the fate of democracy. And is that what drives you, Henry, this this state of urgency? Why do you feel an obligation to the public? You clearly defy this kind of, you know, ivory tower academic, you know, that's just publishing academically. You really, you're doing this interview. You do tons of interviews like this one. You publish uh, journalistic works all the time. Why do you feel that obligation? Is it this sense of urgency? I, I think it's a sense of what it means to to be in the university and to be ethically and politically responsible. You know, I mean, I certainly there's an urgency because I, I hate injustices and you know, I hate to see them. And I, and I think that, you know, I don't speak as, as a, an isolated intellectual. I speak as a way to model a kind of intellectual work that it would, it would seem to me, uh, people can look to and say, look, yes, we need to do that. And we need to be involved in social movements. I mean, I really want to, in some way, not only educate students, I want to educate people who are not considered to be uh, officially or categorically intellectuals in the, in the most limited sense of the world. I want to speak to a public and be able to say, hey, look, you know, people are smart, right? I mean, people can understand things. I mean, we, you, you, you can't talk about being an academic unless you can take seriously what it means to help people to understand both themselves, their relationship to others in the larger world. Because Marx was only partly right when he said the point is not to understand the world, but to change it. Actually, you can't change it unless you understand it. I'm sorry. So I, I really want to err on the side of first understanding the world, you know, and making education central to politics and to any sense of viable agency, any sense. If you're not educated, if, you're not, if you don't have access to resources, if you're not motivated uh, in, in terms of what it means to be able to act individually and collectively with others to basically improve the world, then you're operating in dead time. You know, it's dead time, right? This, the, these are all pockets of social abandonment. I mean, all these discourses that you've mentioned to me, how all the, the university is filled with the left, or the university is just PC. These are nothing more than cheap arguments to basically undermine the function of the university as a democratic public sphere. That's all this is. That's why I often 
refer to the people who make these arguments as anti-public intellectuals. They're not about the public. They're not about improving the public. They're about shrinking the public. They're about commodifying the public. They're about turning the public into something that basically becomes fodder for people like Trump or, or you know, a whole range of other uh, authoritarians who really make the claim that they love uneducated people. Of course they do. I mean, you, you love uneducated people because they're not going to challenge you. They're not going to interrogate you. They're not going to hold power accountable. At the same time, we, we, we are seeing that, you know, all of these things you're saying are absolutely true. But at the same time, the, these attacks exist. These attacks on the humanities, on the social sciences are absolutely just very much there. How do we communicate? How do we better communicate to the public that these disciplines are important? that they are necessary? What needs to happen to better communicate that? What do intellectuals need to do? What do academics need to do to better communicate their value to the public? That's a good question, and it's an important question. Let's, let's begin with two or three essential, I would think, conditions. I mean, I think the first thing that intellectuals need to do is to redirect and redefine what their role might be. Academics, that is, right? Instead of just being academics, they need to become public intellectuals, meaning that they need to somehow be able to use the talents that they have in whatever fields they they find themselves in and redirect those talents in ways to address important public issues. There aren't a limited number of, of issues available for them to speak to. Secondly, they have to learn how to rewrite the nature of their discourses. And I think that what that means is that they've got to be both rigorous and they've got to be accessible. You have to be able to write in a way where you don't compromise academic integrity. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that you have to write in a way that's so jargonistic that nobody understands you. It's a false dichotomy. You know, the argument often is, well, I can't write like that because, you know, I'm really compromising theoretical rigor. That's nonsense. Edward Said didn't compromise theoretical rigor. Neither did Freud, neither did Pierre Bourdieu near the end of his life or Noam Chomsky. It's, it doesn't make sense. Thirdly, you've got to be able to find those public spheres and those places outside of the university where you can write in ways that inform large audiences. I know one of the things that I did at Mac and I did with Truthout was I created the Public Intellectual Project. And that project was designed to get intellectuals to be able to write important issues, to be able to address important issues in a language that was rigorous and accessible. And it worked. I mean, the thing about uh, Truth Out that was really interesting is that they were hesitant to do this initially because they thought that any piece over five pages, nobody would read. They discovered that all the articles that we were submitting that were getting published went right to the top of the list. So there was an enormous audience out there uh, just waiting to get rigorous analysis that were accessible. I write a piece for any one of these outlets, whether it be Truth Out, Counterpunch, Truth Dig, Alternate, Rise Up Times, Salon, and you know you get 5,000 hits in a week. I write a, 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 a rigorous kind of arcane academic piece that goes into an edited book, and generally in five years, as the figures now are, 50 people will read it. 50 people. So, you know, it, this is not an argument of against pushing the theoretical frontiers of the disciplines we're in. It's an argument about what it means to both be an academic in the most strict sense, if you want to do that, but also to be a public intellectual, because you can no longer separate the terms. If you do, you might find yourself in the position of being not being able to defend the very nature of your own labor, and you may not have a job anymore. Or you may be reduced to an adjunct, teaching four courses a, a week, and unable to even think about what it means to be in the world outside of the necessity of simply trying to survive. So these are important political issues. Now, there's a fourth issue. 
And the fourth issue is that education is not a marginal activity when it comes to thinking about politics. It's central to politics. Nobody who in any way believes that you live in a political world can ignore the possibilities and the dictates of what education means, because education creates the oxygen to which people breathe, to which they understand themselves, relate to others, understand the world in general. So it seems to me that we have to ask ourselves a fundamental question. What does it mean to read and write in ways or to produce in ways, whether we're writing, we're producing programs, we're doing interviews, in which in those narratives, other people can recognize themselves? that they can invest in those narratives in ways in which they become acutely aware that to become voiceless is to become powerless. And to have a voice is the precondition for any sense of agency that always matters in a democracy. Henry goes on to talk about why he thinks that people like Jordan Peterson have been so pervasive in this moment. I mean, I think it's best to talk about him, and I wasn't even strong enough. I mean, he's a clown. He's a clown. I mean, he's a guy who believes that women should be basically modeled after what, how women were modeled in the 18th century. He's a guy who basically argues for a kind of basically white supremacy. He's a guy who argues for a notion of male uh, masculinity that is, that is toxic in many ways. And all of a sudden, because there aren't other narratives and people are so in need of some sense of consistency to be able to define their own agency, bam. This guy comes right at the right moment, right? right? He fills a void that's been created by a society that hates community, that hates democracy, that hates justice, that hates social relationships based on equality, and he's right there. He becomes their, their poster boy. I mean, in five years, nobody will know his name. We find ourselves in a society in which notions of community are withering. Precarity is everywhere. There's a sense of enormous uncertainty. People can't hold down jobs. There's a sense that we live in a, we have to, we buy the, the ethos of a survival of the fittest society. It, we're in a world in which it's a war of all against all. It's a reality TV modality. And in that reality TV modality in which there's only one person left on the island, which is really the essence of neoliberalism, right? This kind of hyper-radical competitiveness, this hyper-radical individualism that separates people and pits people against each other. So rather than your gain being a source of my happiness, your gain is my loss. And, and people are atomized. They're, they're, they're alienated. They're cut off. Uh, they don't have social provisions. They're, they're being withered away. Public goods are disintegrating. And in the midst of that, people are dying for some sense of community, some sense of a narrative that gives them a sense of being in the world with others. And right now, we live in a world where the right wing fills in that narrative. They say things like, look, democracy, you, you don't need rights to have democracy. You need security. You know, that democracy doesn't be, need to be liberal to compete in a, in a global, in a, you know, globally, in a competitive global world. This is, these are really dangerous ideologies that speak to the fact that more and more people don't, are not organized around shared responsibilities. They're organized around shared fears. And we just saw this in the midterms with Trump. He pushed the fear button to a, to a degree which is unprecedented. That button basically divides people against each other. It alienates people. It isolates people. It undermines any sense of community. And it's at the essence of fascism. That's the essence of fascism. 
It seems to me that we are in the midst of a fascist politics. And while it may not replicate the concentration camps of the 1930s and the 40s, it does, there are alarming signs of and echoes that in, in which those, that those fascist elements are being recycled in different forms. Ultranationalism, white supremacy, the hatred of others, the notion of racial purity, pollution on the part of some classes, uh, the, the anti-intellectualism, the repression of dissent. These are not new, Maggie. We have seen these before. And when you wipe out historical consciousness and you say it doesn't matter anymore, or you say, well, the only time you can really make that comparison is if it's so precise that it absolutely models what Hitler did. That's just nonsense. Nonsense. And so it seems to me that that atomization, that alienation, the preconditions for people for feeling fearful and alone rather than in some way in, uh, in embracing social bonds that bring them together is one of the great injustices that we now face all over the world. And it's the responsibility of intellectuals to address that. Are we are we in the darkest timeline? Like, can we get can things get worse? I, I, I yes, things could certainly get worse. I mean, you know, for instance, in the United States, uh, Trump could impose uh, martial law, right? He could he could start censoring the press in ways that are really dangerous. Uh, he could override the justice system, which he's in- consistently trying to do. He could align himself with other dictators. Uh, there's always the possibility of rivalries that could produce a nuclear a nuclear war. Things could get worse, but at the same time, we often there's another side to this, in that I think people are starting to push back. Young people are pushing back. Uh, women, suburban women, educated women are pushing back. Minorities are pushing back. You know, you can't dehumanize endlessly like this and believe that people are not are going to just sit back and take this. The language now is so severe, so fascistic, so authoritarian, so over the top that it seems to me spaces are now developing in which people are saying, that's it. The line has been crossed, right? Democracy is now so fragile, so visibly under siege that we have to do something to protect it. And I really believe it'll be protected. I think people will mobilize. I think that these these dark forces or these forces of authoritarianism that we see at work now, they will be challenged. It'll take time. We have to be able to, we, we can't make the mistake of, of, of identifying a moment as a movement. Protest movements are great. They educate people, but they have to translate into movements. We need social movements and we need social movements that are comprehensive and not locked into silos. You know, this is not an argument against uh, single issue movements. It's an argument against them coming together while not eliminating the nature of their own oppressions or the the uh, the politics that they're pushing. It's just to say, look, I can I'm, I'm against racism, but you can't have a democracy that basically is utterly misogynist. <laughs> right. I mean, how do these things come together to create a kind of larger comprehensive politics in which we say we're fighting for radical democracy? And in a radical democracy, you can't have sexism. You can't you can't attack the planet. You can't have ecological disasters. You can't have racism. You can't be demonizing people. You can't eliminate the social state while increasing the punishing state. This has to stop. That's a banner that helps. I want to live there. Yeah, I want to live there too. And that's it for our show. Next week, I'm going to be talking to philosophy professor Jennifer Nagel from the University of Toronto about the difference between knowledge and belief. 
which I think is a really important conversation in this moment where the truth feels like a moving target. So if you like what you heard, please feel free to subscribe on lowercasetruthpodcast.com or you can subscribe on whatever platform you use to access sounds. We are on iTunes, Spotify, Google Music, and SoundCloud. Until next time, friends. (laughs) 